This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening and welcome. As a UC San Diego alumna, I am truly honored to join in this annual celebration of our university's founding. My name is Jane Mitchell, and I am from the class of <clears throat> 1985. Uh, I was here from 1981 to 1985, and I really enjoyed studying here as an undergraduate. Unlike my sister, who is actually here tonight, who was a pre-med and is now a, a doctor, I focused on the social sciences. Uh, even though UCSD didn't have a journalism program, I found it to be a place that allowed me to find my own way to be a broadcast journalist. I majored in political science on the advice of network anchor Jane Pauley, and I was a visual arts and lit writing minors. Um, of course, video was new back then, if you can believe that. Things have changed. But it really gave me the, the place to spread my wings and find my own way to create something that I wanted to do as I journeyed to be a, a reporter in television. And I might not remember a lot of the details or theories from some of my professors, so sorry Steve Erie and Sam Popkin, two of my favorites, but the environment and coursework challenged me to see things differently, challenged me to ask questions differently than I might have in other situations, and I've applied that in my nearly mm, 30 years as a person in news and sports and documentaries. I'll never forget one midterm I had with Steve Erie when I kept changing the answer in the blue book. Do you still have blue books? Um, I was so confused. I couldn't remember which one, and I was so upset afterward, crying in tears. And he said, Jane, it's not the end of the world. You can make it up. And for a place that had so much pressure and so much competition, to have that compassion there as well really helped me adapt into the real world, which is not always as forgiving as we know. Can you relate? How many out there are, of you are graduates from UC San Diego? Wonderful. How many of you are current students? Okay. Well, I can feel the brain power here tonight. Uh, just walking around and seeing what some of these students are doing. It's really quite impressive, and I'm glad to see how UCSD has made such a difference in our lives. And tonight, you'll hear from six outstanding faculty members who will highlight the life-changing research, education, and public service happening every day here at UCSD. And the research has real-time, real-world impact on lives here and in the future. But before we begin, it's my pleasure to introduce our chancellor. Chancellor Kosla is an internationally renowned electrical and computer engineer. He is also an elected member of several distinguished academies and the recipient of many awards for his leadership, teaching, and research. He initiated and led the campus in developing our first ever campus-wide strategic plan, which has sharpened UC San Diego's vision as a student-centered, research-focused, service-oriented public university that ensures opportunity for all. Please welcome Chancellor Kosla. Thank you, Jane, and welcome, everybody, and good afternoon. Uh, thank you for being here this afternoon. Uh, 
this is the beginning of the celebration of a week, a weekend based, a weekend long celebration of our 55th birthday. Isn't that amazing? If we were a human being, we would be looking towards collecting social security in a few more years. But we being a great educational institution, we are barely in what I think are teenage years. And in these teenage years, in the last 55 years, we have accomplished so much that there is no university that was founded in the, 20, 20, in the 20th century that has accomplished as much as we have. We are one of the top 10 institutions in the world. Uh, we are number five in our research uh, rankings in the U.S. with more than a billion-dollar portfolio. And when I say this, I want to make sure that just about every department that we have brings in research funds. But every department we have does spectacular research, and their impact is felt not just in this region. It's felt in the state. It's felt in the country. It's felt in the world. And this afternoon, you're going to hear from six speakers who are who are who have been picked based on two broad topics. So when we finished our strategic planning process about two years ago, we picked four broad thematic areas. So this afternoon, you're going to hear from two of those thematic areas. And I'm not going to spoil the fun for you, but when you hear these six speakers talk, you will realize what a spectacular faculty we have. And it's no doubt that we are ranked so high because it's the work of these faculty members that is causing ripples, that's making an impact uh, throughout the world. So I'm really excited to be here this afternoon. Uh, so I'm going to hand over uh, to my executive vice chancellor very soon. But before I do that, I want to invite you to this weekend of celebrations. Tomorrow, we're going to recognize three of our faculty members. And let me tell you, these three faculty members are going to be recognized with the Ravel Medal. And they are Cecil Lytle, uh, Bud Meehan, and Susan Shirk. These are amazing faculty members whose presence on our campus over the last three decades plus has really changed the nature of who we are, has really put us on the world stage in everything we do. And these are the people who are going to be recognized tomorrow, uh, tomorrow afternoon, and they will be recognized, let me just read this, for their sustained and distinguished and extraordinary service, which has helped make UC San Diego world-renowned university. And then we'll have our Founders Festival starting at noon in Town Square tomorrow, and I hope you'll join us. So, without much ado, I want to let you enjoy the TEDx-style talks, but to introduce the talks and to say a little bit more is our Executive Vice Chancellor, our leader of the academic enterprise at UC San Diego, an eminent biologist, and an amazingly good person with an amazing sense of humor, Dr. Suresh Subramani. Well, thank you so much, Pradeep, for, for that warm introduction, and welcome to all of you. So tonight, we honor the innovation as well as the interdisciplinary scholarship that UC San Diego is renowned for. This is what our university founders wanted us to do, and we are, really, we are very proud of all that we have achieved, and we are looking forward to an even brighter tomorrow. Uh, as you heard from both Jane and Pradeep, tonight's talks will focus on research that is going on on the campus, as well as the education that our faculty are undertaking in a broad framework of two different significant themes. The first one is understanding cultures and addressing disparities in society, and the second one uh, is exploring the basis of human knowledge, learning, and creativity. 
both of these are really uh, a subset of the four themes that we had showcased uh, uh, overall, overall as part of the strategic plan. We showcased two of these themes in, in last year's Founder Symposium, so we're doing the other two right now. And all four of these really go after the, the, the campus strategic plan and its uh, student-centric nature as well as the research-focused, service-oriented public university. And what you'll hear about today is uh, the, the two themes, and let me just break those down for you. The first one is understanding cultures and addressing disparities in society. Now, all of us know that there are disparities of many, many kinds that pervade all of society in different parts of the globe, and they negatively impact every society around the world. They exist in areas of income, health, education, resources, nutrition, human rights, political freedom, just to name a few, and there are even unintended consequences of technological advances that create inequalities in our societies. Now, these disparities impact the quality of life as well as uh, access to opportunities and also affect social mobility around the world, and they pose serious threats whether it's ethical, economical, or social challenges that are often the underlying cause of social unrest around the world, wars, mass migrations of the kind that we are seeing even today. And so our faculty are trying to understand these problems and find solutions to these disparities. And they're focused on four specific areas that I just want to touch on. First of all, they're trying to understand diverse human cultures, organizations, behaviors, and modes of self-expression. They're trying to develop solutions to such inequities, such as health, education, political freedom, and financial resources. They're trying to understand how cultural, historical, and organizational context impacts the decisions that we make. And finally, in all the things that we do, they're trying to develop ethical guidelines that inform policymaking to ensure that rapid technological advances, while achieving their intended uh, uh, potential good, don't cause unintended harm uh, in, in their uh, consequences. So moving to the next theme, then, exploring the basis of human knowledge, learning, and creativity, I can tell you that our lives are enmeshed with the workings of very complex, dynamic, and adaptive systems that we seek to understand and ultimately we want to control them. And this includes everything from our own genomes to our brain as well as to organizations and global entities and global ecosystems, for example. So with the advent of, of big data and data analytics, the scope of data collection and computational tools has exploded in the, in the last decade or so, so that it's now possible to take these very, very complex problems in society and break those down to try and understand the multiple variables that control things like how humans think or how we learn or innovate or create as well as to try and understand groups, cultures, and even societies to make advances. So what started off as something that was a, a, a tool used in the STEM disciplines has now expanded to medicine as well as social sciences and the arts. And this is where the excitement comes in because this is where the big data and data analytics are finding ways in, in shaping everything that we do around the university. And of course, uh, the, the younger generation, are they're really adept at, at using these tools uh, far better than we, the older faculty, might, might, uh, might do. So uh, what I want to just leave you with then is that 
we are trying to use our faculty and students and staff to really translate these insights into practical applications that serve the common good. And examples of this would be changing learning environments for for children, building active design incubators, supporting innovative and inclusive public policies, and mapping dynamic neural connections to understand things like learning uh, behavior and creativity. So in closing, let me just say that Transformation with our broader society begins right here at UC San Diego through the work that we do as part of our teaching, research, and public service missions. I want to, I hope that you take away from tonight's conversation the unique manner in which UC San Diego achieves these goals and how the talent of the faculty and the students come together to help achieve this, this kind of transformation in our society. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. I'm going to turn this over back to Jane. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, on a personal note, when I was asked to do this, I thought, what, what an honor and a pleasure. But I read through some of the information, and I thought, my goodness, there's, there's so much academia sort of sense. But then I started reading and realizing this true application of what they're studying and what they want to study and how that will apply to real life. And as a mid-century new mother of a two-and-a-half-year-old, thanks to science, I'm excited to see... Like this one thing out there at the, at the reception, Sisters, a program which is really designed to help inspire girls to go into computer science and engineering. And so things are pink and they like to wear a princess dress and love trucks, as my Lily does. But this is what the real world is. And to be on a campus to see that this type of stuff is happening is very inspiring. So let's, uh, uh, let's get ready for some very eye-opening talks, but let me give you a couple of things that we need to note before we do that. Uh, we are going, I'm going to introduce all six speakers who will do a TEDx-style talk for about 10 minutes each. As you heard, the themes are understanding cultures and addressing disparities in society and exploring the basis of human knowledge, learning, and creativity. All right, ready to meet the speakers? Up first will be Jennifer Burney. Jennifer Burney is an assistant professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy. Her work focuses on the relationships between climate and food security. Using global data as well as smaller-scale studies of innovative technologies and strategies, tonight she will explore the potential for a resilient food system at the heart of a new sustainable development agenda. Professor Burney was named a National Geographic Emerging Explorer in 2011. Batting second, Paul Niehaus. Paul Niehaus is an associate professor in the Department of Economics. He works with governments in emerging economies to improve the implementation of social programs. As co-founder and president of Segovia Technology Company and Give Directly, he's working to help end extreme poverty with electronic payment technology. Tonight, he'll describe how technological innovation and new evidence are driving one of the most profound changes in the history of foreign aid. In 2013, foreign policy named him one of its 100 leading global thinkers. Angela Booker. 
Angela Booker is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication. Collaborations with youth, community partners, educators, and scholars form the basis of her work. She is particularly concerned with addressing barriers that diminish access to public participation among underrepresented and disenfranchised communities. Tonight, she'll explore storytelling as means of promoting the well-being of youth and families in their communities. Emily Roxworthy is an associate professor, theater historian, and performance scholar, and head of the doctoral program in the Department of Theater and Dance. Her research focuses on issues around interculturalism and interactivity and interdisciplinary uses of theatrical role play. Tonight, she'll share how interactive documentary theater, devised from experiential data, can create institutional change. Craig Callender. Craig Callender is a professor and chair in the Department of Philosophy. Much of his work is on the intersection of time and science, especially in physics and psychology. Tonight, he'll discuss how the speed of scientific innovation often outpaces society's ability to understand and respond to attendant ethical issues and how UC San Diego as a public institution and major source of innovation will provide leadership to shape society's response to new science and technology. And our sixth speaker will be Alan Daly. Alan Daly is a professor and chair of the Department of Education Studies. His research focuses on the role of leadership, educational policy, and organization structures, and the relationship between those elements on the educational achievement of student populations that are traditionally underserved. And tonight, he'll ask us to consider the influence of networks and relationships on change and learning. Some very smart people who hopefully will make us all get it <laughs> and, um, and see what they're doing. Very exciting. It's an impressive lineup. So let's get on with the program, and we're going to start with Jennifer Burney. Please welcome her to the stage. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here tonight, especially among colleagues uh, whom I deeply, deeply admire. We live in a world where nearly a billion people simply do not have enough food to eat on a daily basis, and an even greater number suffer from so-called hidden hunger or a cr critical lack of protein and micronutrients. This reality should pain us, and I believe we have a moral imperative to at least think about how to address it. But I'd be lying if I said it isn't daunting. Because the world I want us to imagine tonight is one in which everyone has enough food to eat at all times. That is food security, and that is a tall order. To get there, to do some radical rethinking, as this talk title suggests, I'd like to start by suggesting that we need to consider the broader ecosystem, because food is neither produced nor consumed in a vacuum. Aha! <laughs> My research focuses on the relationships between food security and climate, and these two issues are, of course, deeply intertwined. On the one hand, climate changes impact agricultural production. On the other hand, food production, processing, and consumption are major contributors to climate change. From our perspective here in California, one of the world's leading economies and agricultural epicenters, it's easy to look at this set of coupled problems 
to see only the potentially vicious cycle, and to conclude that the answer here is actually to produce less food. In fact, I hear this all the time, that globally we produce more than enough calories to feed everyone, and so should thus ratchet back production in the name of sustainability. But here's the thing. Even if that factoid about calories is technically correct, this view rests on a cartoonish notion that the world food supply is some sort of self-replenishing pile and that it's simply a matter of will to get that food into everyone's bowls. I want to dispense with that myth tonight because, of course, the world does not work this way. The world food economy is comprised of hundreds of millions of farmers and billions of consumers. Sometimes the interactions between producers and consumers are direct, like you see here, but most often there are intermediaries involved. And every year, those hundreds of millions of farmers are making decisions about what to produce, how to produce it, and what to do with that production, based largely on two things, economic signals and environmental expectations. So food security is not some centralized distribution problem. The world food economy is a dynamic, complex system that's deeply coupled to the environment and that quite literally involves every single person on the planet. So the first thing I'd like to say tonight is that if we want to think about making our world a more food secure place, we need to engage with this system. The second thing I'd like to suggest is that the best way to do so is to focus on smallholders or family farmers. Why? Let's look at some numbers. There are roughly 600 million farms worldwide. Of these, around 500 million are family farms owned and operated by households, not agribusinesses. Most of these are fairly small, from less than an acre to a few dozen acres. And especially when you consider production from these small family farms worldwide, most food doesn't actually travel that far between where it is produced and where it is consumed. Often a lot of it is eaten at home or traded or sold in nearby markets. Uh, yet even though many of these family farms rely on their own production for their food, they are often not self-sufficient and are counterintuitively net food consumers. Finally, most of the world's poorest, most food insecure households are in fact farmers. So raising the productivity of small family farms is key for global food security. And these farms are feeling the pressures of climate change. With the rest of my time tonight, I want to introduce you to three ways in which thinking about alleviating the constraints that climate places on smallholder farmers can actually offer hope for both a more food secure and climate stable world. Okay, so the first way that climate impacts smallholders is through seasonality. Many of the world's poor family farmers grow rain-fed crops and live in monsoonal ecosystems where all the rain and thus all the agricultural production is confined to one part of the year. This, for example, is a cropping calendar for Niger. In rural areas that are not well connected to markets, um, this creates what is known as the hungry season as households try to stretch their food stores through to the next harvest. During this time of year, they may have to eat less food or buy food at much higher prices. And as a result, when harvest time finally does come around, they are often desperate to sell their crops, but this is when prices are lowest. There are lots of ways to think about breaking this cycle, and a number of colleagues here at UC San Diego are working on this, but my own work in this domain focuses on irrigation. I've been working with the Solar Electric Light Fund to help women's farming groups in Benin, West Africa, use solar-powered drip irrigation systems to grow fruits and vegetables during the long dry season. These systems use photovoltaic arrays, like the one you see here, to sustainably pump groundwater into large reservoirs, like you see on the lower left here. Water is then gravity distributed through conventional drip irrigation systems, like you see in this field that's being prepared. 
These are community-scale gardens that are now owned and operated by women's farming groups in 10 rural villages in northern Benin. Uh, And we've seen that these farmers and their families, thousands of direct beneficiaries, reap both significant income and nutritional benefits from being able to produce, consume, and sell food year-round. So here we have a strategy that is profitable, that helps farmers adapt to climate by breaking the seasonal rainfall dependence, and that also mitigates climate change. Because by using a renewable energy source, instead of gas or diesel-based alternatives, these gardens each offset about a ton of carbon per year. The second way in which climate changes are impacting food production is through longer-run trends. I think we are all aware that average global temperatures are now the hottest on record. We also now know, although it varies by crop and location, that without adaptation, we generally expect crop yields to decline as warming increases. Moreover, studies suggest that these climate trends are outpacing the capacity of farmers to adapt on their own. We see this in particular in semi-arid agricultural regions like the Brazilian Sertão, where local trends can be more than twice the global average, really just astounding changes in the last half century. This is a dairy and livestock region, and here we see that the trends have made it increasingly hard for small family farmers to grow enough forage for their animals. This has led to both overgrazing, like you see here in this farm in the middle, and expansion of crop and pasture land. Then this really does become a vicious cycle, because the conversion of carbon-rich native habitats to farmland releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, and is in fact the biggest source of emissions from food production. But it turns out that there are some very clever strategies for intensively producing new forage crops, like this palma foragera. You might recognize this as nopales, or cactus, from your local taqueria. Uh, It turns out that cows and smaller ruminants love, love this stuff just like the rest of us. You can produce a large volume in a small area, and thus you can rehabilitate an ecosystem, sequester carbon, and increase farmer productivity all at the same time. My students and I are working with a group called Adapta Sertao to measure the impacts for farmer incomes, food production, land cover, and climate of technical assistance programs that are helping farmers who want to adopt this system. The third way in which climate changes are impacting food production is through large increases in emissions and thus concentrations of compounds we typically consider air pollutants, things like surface ozone and its precursors, and particulate matter like black carbon and sulfate aerosols. These are potent climate change agents and also have negative impacts on humans and plants. If you look at a place like India as an example, and where crops are grown, these areas are actually often very polluted. This is an image from NASA of an atmospheric brown cloud, a regional scale pollutant cloud that builds up during the dry season. In India, this is the wheat growing season. And using emissions data, satellite measurements, and crop data, my UC San Diego colleague and mentor, Ramanathan, and I have shown that increases in pollution over the past three decades have been devastating to wheat yields. They're over 30% lower than they would have been had the air stayed relatively clean. On the one hand, this is an astonishingly large number. But the good news is that these pollutants have very short atmospheric lifetimes. Unlike long-lived greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, some of these compounds last only a few weeks in the air so you would see an almost immediate impact of any mitigation efforts. So what might be done? Some of the pollution is from urban sources that wafts out over agricultural areas like you see here, but a lot of it is also from biomass burning in traditional cook stoves in the agricultural areas themselves. There is, in fact, a tremendous overlap worldwide between between food and energy security. 
Many of the world's poorest agricultural households also rely primarily on biomass as their main source of cooking energy. They spend tremendous amounts of time gathering wood and dung and crop residues with obvious implications for land cover. Cookstove technologies that are both more fuel efficient and cleaner burning can address both pollution and deforestation. However, it turns out that many so-called improved cookstoves are actually not any better for people, crops, or climate than traditional stoves. Students in my lab are working both to measure the emissions from different types of cookstoves and to figure out ways to use carbon markets to incentivize the uptake of truly improved technologies. So to conclude my remarks tonight, I'd like to reiterate that I'm hopeful. It is easy to assume that food and climate are locked in a vicious cycle of feedback. But by thinking about the constraints that climate places on the world's most vulnerable farmers, namely seasonality, long-run trends, and pollution, it becomes clear that win-win scenarios do exist. It's an honor to be part of the community here at UC San Diego that is working to imagine, implement, and evaluate these kinds of solutions that show promise of putting us all on a more sustainable, food-secure future. Thank you. That was awesome, wasn't it? Thanks, Jen. Uh, One of the things I love about UCSD, um, you know, in my mind, there are sort of two big challenges facing us, right? There's climate and global poverty. Um, And one of the things I love about UC San Diego is that we have great people working on both. So thanks, Jennifer. Um, I have the, uh, the good fortune and the excitement to get up in the morning and think about what we can do to accelerate the end of extreme poverty. And I want to share with you a simple message tonight which is that the way we fight extreme poverty can and should change in a fundamental way. To be specific, we should spend less money buying things that we think poor people need and give more money directly to poor people to let them do what they want with it. Now, to explain this, I want you to come back with me to my grad school days, and I want to share with you two observations that my collaborators and I made at the time that have really driven my work ever since. Uh, The first is evidence. I uh, did my PhD in economics at a really exciting time for the profession because for the first 50 years or so of development economics of foreign aid, we didn't test our ideas experimentally. Experimental testing is sort of at the heart of learning in many fields of human endeavor, like clinical trials in medicine, A-B testing in technology. We didn't do that for a very long time with foreign aid. But in the early 2000s, development economists started to get out in the field and do this. And so we were learning at an incredibly rapid clip. And as you'd expect, there were some things that didn't work as well as we'd hoped. I think it's fair to say that microcredit hasn't lived up to the hopes that we had for it. Uh, Jobs and skills trainings haven't worked out well. You know, we have this aphorism, right? Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Uh, Turns out we're really bad at fishing lessons. Uh, But the converse is, of course, there are other things that work better than we'd expected. And it seemed clear to us that across test after test in many different contexts, this really simple approach of giving money to poor people, letting them do what they want with it, uh, was working really well. And it's a hard literature to summarize because it's enormous, but I wanted to give you some sense with this map of the scope in terms of geography and in terms of outcomes um, and pull out three themes that I think are important from the literature. The first is that we haven't seen a lot of the negative things that we worried about. So across 19 studies reviewed by the World Bank, we haven't seen any evidence of people drinking or smoking more, right? which is one of the things that we often worry about, if we're honest. Uh, If anything, we've seen the opposite. Across six studies recently reviewed by folks at MIT, we haven't seen evidence of people working less after receiving cash transfers. right? So those, those negative things that we were worried about have not materialized. 
Um, the flip side is we have seen positive impacts, and I'd emphasize that they're incredibly varied. In some contexts, we'll see reductions in HIV rates among teenage girls. In other contexts, we'll see increases in earnings. Um, in other contexts, we'll see reductions in child labor, increases in schooling. Um, in some of the work that we've done in East Africa, we've seen a lot of people upgrading their roofs from a thatch roof to a metal roof. That turns out to be a great investment because if you have a thatch roof, you've got to repair it every year, and the metal roof lasts for a really long time. We think it's around a 20% rate of return on that investment. Um, we'd all love to have that on our 401ks, wouldn't we? Right? So, you know, there's no one thing that people do when you give them money, and that's kind of the point because the point is about flexibility, right? And it's about their ability to pursue what they see as a priority. Um, the last theme that I'd pull from this literature, which is really important, is that we have evidence of long-term impacts. And that's so important because we talk a lot about sustainability, right? We care about the long-term in this field. But the truth is, we have evidence on the long-term impact of very, very few things. Uh, we do for cash transfers. We have evidence that four or five years out, um, there have been large sustained impacts on the lives of people that have received them. So this evidence was the first observation. Um, the second was the incredible things happening in last-mile payments technologies in the emerging markets. Um, we are increasingly in a world in which we're connected digitally and financially to the extreme poor. Um, and mobile money is, of course, probably the best-known example of this. Right? So there are hundreds of millions of poor people in the world now who can now receive electronic money on a feature phone that costs as little as $10. You put those two things together, and it seemed to us like an incredible opportunity and something that could potentially reshape the way we think about the bulk of foreign assistance and anti-poverty spending. Now, initially, we were excited about this, in fact, just as individual donors. Like, we wanted to be able to give away our own money in this way. And we had a series of really interesting conversations with some of the, uh, the existing NGOs to ask if they would let us do that. Um, I think what we found was that, on the one hand, a lot of organizations in this sector do cash transfer programming, and they perceive it as having been very successful. But at the same time, it was clear that nobody was going to be offering us as individuals the opportunity to do this, to send money directly to the extreme poor. And when you think about it, it makes sense, because at the end of the day, this is an industry that is built to allocate capital on behalf of poor people. That is its reason for existence. And so for at least some part of that industry, the opportunity to send money directly, it is an existential threat. So we came to the conclusion that if we wanted to do this, we were going to have to do it uh, for ourselves from scratch. And so started Give Directly, an NGO that we opened up to the public in 2011. We've grown it from there. This year will probably be at around $50 million in revenue for the year, uh, 80 people around the country, mostly in East Africa, around the world. Um, and I think just as important as the number is Give Directly has become a laboratory to test the ideas and answer the questions um, that other people either can't or don't want to ask. So, for example, we didn't know what happens when you give a large lump sum of money to a poor family and let them run with it. Um, we do now, because we've tested that. We're, we're working with USAID this year. Right? USAID has never tested the cost effectiveness of their existing programming against this. We're working with Craig McIntosh here at UC San Diego this year. We're going we're to answer that question for them. So I think of this as one really exciting frontier for this work. Uh, but there's a second frontier... Because many of the world's poor don't yet have access to this kind of digital payments infrastructure. And so there's work to be done to push that out into the countryside and get people plugged in. And I've worked on this with my colleague Karthik Muraliteran here in the economics department at UC San Diego. We've had the opportunity to work on it with the government of India. Um, India, as you may know, is in the midst of arguably the most ambitious policy initiative on the planet 
uh, issuing biometric IDs to 1.3 billion people. It's an incredibly ambitious undertaking, and it's so important because India currently spends around 2% of GDP on its core anti-poverty programming, and by their own estimates, lose about half of that every year to fraud and corruption. That's an incredible hole to try to plug. So we've had the opportunity in working with the government, uh, we worked with the government of Andhra Pradesh, one of India's largest states, to randomize the rollout of this biometric technology as they integrated it into their social protection programming. We worked with AP, we randomized this, as you see in the background, over around 20 million people. We think it's probably one of the largest experiments of this kind ever conducted, we don't know for sure. Um, and it was a really landmark agreement to sign an MOU with the, like this with the government and a bold move on their part to subject a major policy initiative to this kind of experimental testing. Uh, what we found was encouraging, and I'd be honest, we went in with sort of 50-50 beliefs about whether this was a good idea or not. There are lots of ways in which this could go wrong or even backfire. Um, as it turns out, this cut corruption in government programs by around a third. It also substantially improved the payment experience for users. It took them less time to get their money, the payments were more predictable, to the point where when we asked them, about 90% of users said that they preferred the new system to the old. And that number was instrumental in the government's decision to retain it as they started to get pushback from vested interests, right, who were seeing their money cut out by this new payments infrastructure. So I think of this as the second frontier, the second thing to push on. Um, and I'd also think of this as a, as a, as a close, in a, as a challenge to all of us tonight. The challenge I'd issue to you is to imagine a world in which, because of technologies like this, um, this kind of payments infrastructure becomes ubiquitous. Imagine a world in which everybody's connected to digital electronic payments, and then ask the tough questions. In a world like that, would we still ship bags of rice around the world to help the poor? More generally, would we still build opaque, top-heavy AIDS institutions where some, some large share of the money that we spend on aid never even leaves our own shores? Would we still do that? I feel like at UC San Diego, we're, we're really leading the charge to answer a lot of those questions through the work we're doing. Um, but I'll share my own personal perspective. Cash transfers are certainly no panacea. Right? Roads are not going to build themselves. Vaccines are not going to discover themselves uh, simply because poor people have more money in their pockets. But they should be a larger share of what we do. And they should also be the benchmark for everything that we do. With every dollar that we spend, we should ask ourselves the question, are we confident? Do we have good evidence to suggest that we can do more good with this dollar than poor people could do for themselves if they had it? Because in many cases, if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is going to be no. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm very excited to be here with you, and I'm going to try to jump right in uh, to a conversation about storytelling. Um, my name is Angela Booker. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Communication by way of a Department of Education, so kind of stepping into a new role here. Um, and I want to jump in with a little visual storytelling and ask the question, what's the work that stories do? So the first question is for you. Does anybody recognize this? A few people? Yeah? So this, uh, 23 years ago, is a place that I heard a lot about. It's a garage where a couple of young people named, uh, by the names of Hewlett and Packard had $538, some ambition, a lot of effort, and they gave birth to this huge company, which becomes part of the origin story of a place called Silicon Valley. If you Google image Silicon Valley, you get a ton of these, and they basically tell us the story that this is the place of innovation and an engine of industry. Um, 
Now, while I was in uh, this area, uh, I spent a lot of time in a place called East Palo Alto. I first started to go there to get my hair done. Uh, and a lot of my fellow students, uh, my, the people I went to school with, thought I was crazy because they knew this story about East Palo Alto. This story says basically East Palo Alto should be known in relation to Palo Alto by the exit on the freeway. It doesn't have a skyline. It doesn't have an industry. And if you look at this uh, feature that Google Images has added, uh, you'll find out there's ghetto, gangs, street, crime. These are the ideas, the stories that get told about East Palo Alto in a quick, quick Google search. Um, I came to know it more deeply when I went to work in East Palo Alto at a place called Plugged In about 15 years ago. Um, right before I arrived at Plugged In, uh, Bill Clinton happened to be coming to Silicon Valley uh, to give talks uh, and address this will of industry uh, and politics, uh, to address something called the digital divide. And perhaps people remember that phrase. Um, the idea was that if you were in uh, this engine of innovation, how could you have right next door a place that was under-resourced, suffer suffering, struggling, being left behind, essentially experiencing this huge gap. And the idea was to have places like Plugged In, a community technology center, uh, to combat this issue. To say, let's bring together our resources and let's help people become uh, really strong in their use of media and technology. Let's get them connected uh, to the web and that sort of thing. The challenge is you're trying to catch up all the time. You can become really good at Microsoft Word. You can learn to use these resources. But catching up with a company like Hewlett Packard is really hard to do. And so the digital divide as a term kind of went away. And it didn't go away because the problem got solved. It went away because other stories got told. New ways to frame the idea came into being. So that's the place where I started to really think about the importance of community university partnerships and the stories that we tell. Because I was experiencing something completely different about East Palo Alto and what was possible there. And I wanted to, uh, I think like Paul spoke of, honor the people in the equation. Um, so I'm new to San Diego. And uh, my family and I moved here actually because of the opportunities we had to do this kind of community-based research. Um, this is an incredible engine. Had I stayed where I was before, I would have spent most of my time, I think, uh, really trying to build uh, these partnerships and make, build the research into that place. But here in the Department of Communication, Education Studies, Sixth College, uh, the medical school, the work of uh, community partnership and practicum work is really well on its way, and we get the chance to run with it. Now, I pull up something a little closer to home to give you a feel that there's a similar story that can be told here in San Diego. Uh, the place that I've come to work uh, and do research and collaborate in is in southeast San Diego. And it looks a lot, in many ways, like what we saw on the first East Palo Alto slide. There's another story that's being told if you search uh, Diamond neighborhood in San Diego. This is a different version of basically the same geographic area. Um, but this is how I've come to know uh, Southeast San Diego. Uh, this is uh, a picture at the end of year party last spring uh, at the Town and Country Learning Center based in the Town and Country Village Apartments. Uh, we've got kids here, undergraduates from UC San Diego, uh, former graduate students who are now faculty, postdocs. And uh, eight years ago, uh, Michael Cole and Beverly Anderson, who's in the middle there with a crown over her head, uh, decided to partner and bring students 
and collaborate around uh, what we could do uh, together as a community and university partnership. Now, I'm new to San Diego enough that when I gave this talk as a practice round, I said town and country, town and country, town and country, and discovered that apparently there is a resort <laughs> called town and country. That's not what we're doing the practicum and the research. We're over here at the town and country apartments. Okay, so Paulo Freire, uh, a Brazilian educator and philosopher, said, a real humanist can be identified more by his trust in the people, which engages him in their struggle, than by a thousand actions in their favor without that trust. And this idea counters traditional notions of intervention. It's about how we align with each other and learn from each other uh, and trust in each other. And I wanted to know more about how, um, how we can do that by understanding the work that stories do. So I want to bring us back there and tell you a little bit about how I came to know uh, the Town and Country Learning Center, mostly through storytelling. Um, now, we have just launched uh, the Democracy Lab at Town and Country in the last uh, few months. So right now I'm talking about really the leading edge of the research that we're trying to accomplish. And um, the stories that I heard emerged from the traditional activities um, that people are engaged in at Town & Country. Uh, healthy snack. Uh, those are Brussels sprouts, probably from Professor Mike Cole's garden. The kids do love them. Uh, and this is an activity that the buddies uh, and the kids engage in together. We call the undergraduates who come out to the course buddies. Um, and uh, this is yoga. Actually, our volunteer yoga teacher is over in the back right here. And so these are activities that were already taking place um, at Town & Country. And one of the stories I heard a lot when I first started to go here was that a few years back, um, some other folks from UCSD came out and did health assessments at Town and & Country. And what they discovered was that there were a lot of health concerns that were shared across the community, namely uh, diabetes, uh, challenges with high blood pressure and heart disease, that kind of thing. And so these individual sort of biomedical diagnoses uh, became a community concern. And part of the connection with the Learning Center, which is situated inside of the apartment complex, is to address and think about health and well-being. So it's a big part of what happens at the center. But an interesting thing happened uh, less than a year ago. Um, this market idea emerged. So there was another tradition at Town & Country that engaged people in these community practices. And that tradition was to fundraise to support the young people at the Learning Center. So People would hold bake sales and fish fries and that kind of thing, and they still do, to support students to do things like attend the National Society of Black Engineers annual conference. Last year that was in Los Angeles. This year it's in Boston. So it's a big effort that the community puts in to make sure kids can go to it. Um, but there was this convergence because there were these other activities, the gardening and the healthy snack and et cetera. And uh, Mike and Ms. Beverly, the director of the center, got together and started to think maybe we could have a market a sort of food stand, a fruit stand, uh, where people can get fresh fruit and vegetables. And so here you see a bunch of undergrads hanging out outside the center. And this is non-trivial because we spent the last seven years mainly inside the center. So moving outside puts us in contact with more than just the people who choose to come to the center, but the residents as they're coming home and that sort of thing. And we get to start to interact with each other. Um, here are a few residents who are participating in the activities. And what happens when you start to sit together in a space and you wait for people to come home and they drive by is you start to hear other stories, stories you didn't hear inside the center. And these were stories that people uh, started to tell us about what it takes to move from a place of community health to a community well-being. 
So health tends to be framed as this individual set of things that we need to address. You get a diagnosis, you get some sort of ideas about what you should do, maybe some prescriptions. Um, wellness takes into account this wider range of experiences. And when we sat at the market, we started to get access to the stories people were telling, and we were starting to get written into the stories that people were telling about well-being. Um, an example of how this occurred was that people would come home and they would say, I save up money every week to come and make a donation and buy something uh, to support the center. I don't have to do that. It's part of how I contribute and become a part of this community. Um, one, of, uh, one of the residents is a seamstress and a budding entrepreneur and uh, started bringing out some of the things that she was making. She would repair things for people. People would make requests. And it became a, a big community engagement kind of experience where recently she, uh, she basically uh, created a whole set of, uh, of uh, clothing for a fundraiser. And uh, people in the community, kids, adults, were the runway models for the fundraiser. So these are the ways that people are engaging and supporting each other. But really, the task is very challenging because what we're talking about is going from knowing what you need to do and having information to changing your life. It's non-trivial. It's hard to do. Um, now, this all started with a lot of uh, collaborative support, a lot of institutional and community partnership. Initially, the Center on Global Justice gave us a little bit to fund a graduate student over the summer and get some of the uh, connections going between local gardens and et cetera. Then, to sustain this every week, we made a partnership here in La Jolla uh, with Whole Foods, and they provide us with a donation box that we can bring down for the fundraisers. And we recently started partnering with the Center for Integrative Medicine here at UC San Diego in uh, really trying to address um, how stories uh, come to work on us as we make these transitions. Uh, from a health to a wellness model. So pulling back a little bit from uh, the details of our practicum course, uh, I want to return us to this question. When does storytelling become a tool for civic participation that people use to shape their circumstances? Because stories do a lot of work. Now, I come to this from a potentially either really confused place because I'm very interdisciplinary, or uh, I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. Now, I, uh, I come out of a, a program in learning sciences and technology design, which means uh, I care a lot about tools and environments. Um, I also take seriously uh, a place of cultural studies, which makes uh, the communication department here at San Diego a really important and exciting place to be. And I can address and ask questions about meaning and power. And I can ask, when are the tools and where are the environments where people start to do this negotiation of meaning and power? And finally, with political sociology, I can start to ask, under what circumstances do people uh, begin to engage in public participation and organizing? Um, and so what I'm looking at is a convergence of tools and cultural production. If we think of tools, we can think that they extend our capacity and they are things that we can appropriate to do what we need to do. We can think of cultural production as, say, an event like this. We're sort of producing our ideas about what UC San Diego is together through these talks, these conversations, and this audience. Um, stories fit right in the middle of that. They are a kind of tool that can be appropriated, that can be used to accomplish a lot. So uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, in his essay, The Storyteller, put it in a way that I think is just right on point and very beautiful. He said, all this points to the nature of every real story it contains openly or covertly something useful. The usefulness may, in one case, consist in the moral, 
in another, in some practical advice, in a third, in a proverb or maxim. In every case, the storyteller is a man who has counsel for his readers. By now, almost nothing that happens benefits storytelling. Almost everything benefits information. Actually, it is half the art of storytelling to keep a story free from explanation as one reproduces it. The most extraordinary things, marvelous things, are related with the greatest accuracy. But the psychological connection of the events is not forced on the reader. It is left up to him to interpret things the way he understands them, and thus the narrative achieves an amplitude that information lacks. So when making the leap from health to well-being, we need more than information. I'm over time, about a minute and 30 seconds, so I'm going to leave you here uh, with this slide. This is a living bridge, and you could look at it and imagine that it's, uh, you know, you could imagine without the bridge, maybe it could be seen as a chasm. It could be seen as impassable. It could be seen simply as a river. Uh, but with the, with the bridge, we have a new kind of story. So I started with this question, what is the work that stories do? And stories do a lot of work. They relate us to one another. Uh, they allow us to negotiate with each other about what we're doing. Uh, they can be circulated. They counter ideas that we hold, but they also normalize ideals that we hold. They announce who we are. They make visible or invisible the agendas and the experiences that we have. Stories affect the tellers and the listeners. And this is critical when we are doing community-based work. We have to be influenced by each other, and we have to trust each other. So under the right conditions, storytelling can construct bridges that give access to well-being, and we want to understand those conditions. Thanks very much for your time. My name is Emily Roxworthy. I'm from the Department of Theater and Dance. But I'm well aware that when you think about UC San Diego, you probably think about cutting-edge research in supercomputing or engineering or health sciences. But what if UC San Diego could also be a leader in these and other STEM fields by leveraging our nationally ranked creative research in theater? I'm here to tell you that UC San Diego is already leading the University of California system in the development of live, interactive documentary theater for leadership training with some of the most influential knowledge producers in the world. I'll also suggest how we can expand this program for private industries that are also dealing with intractable human relations issues in our diverse and globalized world. But first, I'd like to start with an unexpected text message that I recently received from one of the actors in my theater company. The text read, the dean hairballed me again. We had just left a private university where we had delivered an encore performance of our interactive documentary play, Ready to Vote, which portrays an ad hoc faculty review meeting gone terribly wrong. The real-life dean of engineering at this private university had played the role of Bill, a senior white professor in our fictional computer science department who's nearing retirement and who's heavily invested in preserving the traditional excellence of his department. As we do at every workplace where we perform, we had recruited two members of the host campus to play the role of Bill and the role of Blair, a junior faculty member of color who is just trying to navigate departmental politics long enough to get tenure. This photo is from another performance, which we did at UCLA for department chairs and deans this past spring. And you can see at the yellow table on stage, at the far right is a UCLA professor playing the role of Bill. And at the far left, his back is turned to us, but you can see another UCLA professor playing the role of Blair. 
The other four fictional professors are seated furthest from the audience of real professors, and those other four characters are played by professional actors from our graduate programs in theater and dance here at UC San Diego. As a result of this performance this past spring, UCLA has asked us to design interactive theater programs for their school of nursing and for their business school. But let's go back to that encore performance at that private university. During our first performance there, the Dean of Engineering had changed a line that appears about midway through our play, Ready to Vote, in which there's only one woman on the ad hoc committee, a senior white professor named Judy, who is constantly told, uh, constantly interrupted, and told that she's being too emotional. At one point, Bill even interrupts her and says, okay, okay, Judy, don't take this so personally. While that line may sound inflammatory, it's actually quite data-driven. Like all the dialogue in Ready to Vote, it's drawn from interviews that I conducted with current and former UC faculty, particularly women and people of color. That use of interviews and other data is what makes it documentary theater. Like documentary film, it provides an authentic glimpse, in this case, into the uh, real dynamics between uh, how real professors interact and evaluate each other's work. And both times we performed at that private university, the dean of engineering had taken his role so seriously that he changed Bill's line to something he thought captured the authentic flavor of faculty interactions even more accurately. Okay, okay, Judy, don't cough up a hairball. That line had received one of the biggest laughs in the play when we performed there the first time, so it was little wonder that the dean would bring it back for the encore performance. But what surprised the actress who played Judy, who you can see here looking rather skeptical as one of her male colleagues holds forth, was that the dean had followed the script exactly in rehearsal both times and had only changed it once we appeared on stage in front of a live audience. And while Judy bristled at the cat lady stereotype that was being hurled at her unmarried female scientist character, this unplanned uncomfortable moment actually encapsulates the argument that I'd like to make here tonight. Human beings embrace the chance to be part of theater that reflects their world. Now I know what you're thinking. That's an awfully convenient position for someone who studies and makes theater to take. But allow me to clarify. I'm not saying human beings embrace the chance to watch theatrical productions theatrical productions like the one you see here, which we performed at the Hotel Claremont in Berkeley about a year ago. Most human beings don't watch theater productions these days. In fact, the past few decades, we've witnessed a frightening decline in American patronage of the arts, including live performance. But my creative research emerges from the hypothesis that human beings in a range of institutional settings find the opportunity to be involved in the making of theater, to be an enlightening experience, that allows them to speak truth to power and imagine solutions to our most intractable problems. This is what political theater has been doing around the world for millennia. Whether we're talking about the ancient Greek citizens who gathered by the thousands to perform and bear witness to tragic dramas at theaters like the one at Epidaurus, seen here, or the silent scholars and citizens of Yuan China or Mayan Guatemala who made political theater to resist oppressive regimes, Our global ancestors have turned to live performance to represent injustice, bear ethical witness, and experience empathy collectively so as to imagine a better way forward. There are different dynamics, of course, in today's institutions of knowledge, whether we're talking about academia or high-tech or biotech. 
But today there is still a persistence of gender and race-based discrimination, non-objective patterns of behavior that obstruct true collaboration, entrepreneurship, and human potential. A theatrical intervention can help smart people, help get through to smart people who think they should be immune to biases, but who fall prey to bias nonetheless. The UC Office of the President first commissioned me to create Ready to Vote as the theatrical centerpiece to a half-day leadership development seminar called Fostering Inclusive Excellence, which was designed for department chairs and deans on all 10 UC campuses. It was partly in response to this 2013 UC campus climate survey, which found that 25% of faculty had experienced exclusionary, intimidating, offensive, and or hostile behavior, mostly perpetrated by other faculty, with female professors experiencing this type of behavior three times more frequently than their male colleagues. In response to another question about whether tenure and promotion standards were applied fairly, 57% of white faculty thought the review process was fair, while only 27% of their African-American colleagues agreed and only 42% of Chicano and Latino faculty would agree that the processes were fair. But in order to use theater to intervene in some of the climate problems the survey found, my artistic team had to make several key innovations. First of all, the script had to be completely customized for the idiosyncrasies of UC policies and procedures and for the demographics of the state of California. We also had to secure buy-in from local campuses who might perceive this program as an imposition from on high. So in order to encourage chairs and deans to let their guards down and let the message in, we recruited two of their own as amateur actors to play the roles of Bill and Blair. It's hard to tell faculty that they might unknowingly perpetuate, they might be unknowingly perpetuating discrimination. It's hard to tell faculty anything. What we found is that it's much more effective to show them. And that's because today's discrimination, particularly in highly intellectual workplaces, often takes the form of unconscious bias and microaggressions. These are cognitive shortcuts that trick us into thinking that we're judging others impartially when we're in fact using outdated assumptions. Stereotypes like the cat lady or the stereotype that African-American women are always angry or threatening. Then these stereotypes are played out through thousands of daily interactions that communicate to minorities that they don't belong. Microaggressions like telling a black male colleague to lighten up, as we see happen repeatedly in the play Ready to Vote. People on the receiving end of these microaggressions describe the experience as death by a thousand cuts. This is why we named our theater company Workplace Interactive Theater, or WIT, because we're attempting to outwit these patterns through theatrical role play. And as entertaining and as powerful as the play can be, we found that the most powerful breakthroughs for the audience come through the interactive portions, when audience members get to ask the characters difficult questions, comment on the dynamics that they observed on stage, and even direct the actors to replay moments in the, in the play differently in order to interrupt these patterns. The impact of this theatrical intervention can be seen in the post-performance surveys that UC Office of the President conducted at all 10 campuses where we performed. If we just take a look at the six campuses that we visited in 2015, UC Santa Barbara, LA, Merced, Davis, San Francisco, and Berkeley, you can see that in response to two questions about their ability to empathize with the characters or about how effective they found theater as a tool to increase cultural awareness and understanding, 
all of the UC audiences either agreed or strongly disagreed with these statements. And the need for even more of these theatrical interventions can be seen in the many invitations that WIT has been fielding to perform at other workplaces, such as UC Berkeley, where we performed for all the department chairs and deans back in August, and we will be returning next month to perform for full faculties in the College of Letters and Science. This year, we're going to also try to expand our academic pilot to offer customized programs for private industries dealing with similar issues. I'd like to end by showing a clip from the studio version of Ready to Vote, in which the only African-American on the faculty of our fictional computer science department, a mid-career associate professor named Paloa, has just been disparagingly called a diversity hire and a freebie by his colleagues. Paloa proceeds to explain why there must be institutional change. We're all filling that quota. I think Judy could argue that a, a faculty with only two underrepresented minorities, one who was a freebie, and only one woman, well, I'm sorry, two, now that we hired Felicity, isn't doing exactly darn well on diversity. Lighten up, Paloa. We're just having a discussion. Like, There's no need to get so upset. All right, all right. Well, then let's, let's take a look at the CS website. Uh, what scientists are being profiled there? Whose pictures are up? It's a bunch of white I'm men. I'm not trying to be rude, but it's a bunch of white men. We're profiling alumni and faculty who have done great work in the past. What, we can't put them on the website what? because they're white? No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. What are you saying? Well, I'm, I'm not questioning their accomplishments. I'm just saying that we, we have scientists of all ethnic backgrounds who have done path-breaking work recently. Uh, for instance, that CS graduate from a few years back, Alfred Martinez, he's in Chicago right now receiving the Gordon Bell Prize for that the research that he worked on with... Um, oh Jim. my God, Paloa, I never knew you were so sensitive. You want one of those banners on campus with your picture on it? Would that make you feel better? I think it will behoove us to showcase what little diversity we actually have. The incendiary onstage discussion continues, and it never fails to provoke the audience to roll up their sleeves and imagine better ways to go about our business of producing human knowledge. Thank you. Hello, thanks for coming. Um, contrary to uh, recent remarks by Mark Rubio the other night in the uh, debate, I think philosophy is an awesome profession to be in. Uh, I am a philosopher, and so I would know. And what I do is I work on hard conceptual problems and um, more than one science. Meanwhile, I'm teaching courses that range from uh, foundations of quantum mechanics all the way to environmental ethics. My own research is interdisciplinary in that way, too. I work on the physics and philosophy of time. Unlike the other speakers, however, I'm not here to talk about my research which is awesome, and you should go to my website. Uh, but uh, what I'm here instead to talk about is to present a kind of vision of the, for the future of the university. Um, the chancellor challenged us in a strategic plan initiative to address social disparities. I think that one really good way to do this, which capitalizes on UCSD's great strengths, is to help close what I call the science ethics gap. Ethics, most generally put, is just about a, a subject about what you ought to do. And what you ought to do depends on what you can do and what you know. And those things keep changing. As an adult, I know a lot more than I did as a child, and therefore I'm responsible for a lot more. But this is also true of society, of, for societies. 
Uh, and two facts make this especially problematic. The first is that our existing ethical norms, legal structures, and policies are all adapted to past technology. We're not too good about thinking ahead. The second thing is that the pace of technological innovation has expanded you know, exponentially in the, in the last hundred years or so. It's amazing when you think about it. It, it. Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years, and in just the blink of an eye, everything has changed technologically. I always think about how it must be, how it must have been for my grandmother. So she grew up in a world of candles and horses in the rural Azores and survived to a, uh, to a point where she was you know, in a world of the internet, Wi-Fi, neural implants, and whatnot. Think of those changes over just that one lifetime. It's amazing. Now, these changes bring great promise, but they also leave in their wake a trail of ethical uh, dilemmas. Uh, what I want to do is talk about, to give you an idea of what I have in mind, I'll mention two quick examples. Neither of these are science fiction cases. Neither of these could have been conceived even 10 or 15 years ago. Both rely on new technology, and both demand urgent action right now. So this is Scott Routley in 2012. He was a physics major and had a promising robotics career ahead of him when tragedy struck. He was driving away from his grandparents' house with his girlfriend when a police cruiser hit him. The girlfriend and the policeman were both left unharmed, but a head injury quickly proved devastating to Scott. He showed no signs of consciousness for over 12 years and was classified as being in a, a vegetative state. Now, interfunctional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRIs. fMRIs can be used as fancy brain scans. The neurologist Adrian Owen devised a simple test to see whether you could sort of speak through an fMRI. And the idea is this. In healthy subjects, you took people and told, gave them the instructions, if you want to say yes, if you want to communicate yes, think that you're playing tennis. If you want to communicate no, imagine that you're navigating through your kitchen. In healthy subjects who could reveal what they were thinking, it's 100% reliable diagnostic. Now put in people with, in vegetative states. In the first run of experiments, 17% answered questions accurately and were able to communicate. Scott was one of them. He was the first person in human history to communicate what it's like, you know, from the inside of a, what presented to be a, a vegetative state. Somebody like him shouldn't exist, but he does. They asked him questions like about his care. Do you want to watch more hockey? He's Canadian, so the answer was yes. Uh, they asked him questions you might be curious about. Are you in pain? And thankfully, he answered no. I like this example because it illustrates perfectly the kind of thought, of, uh, the kind of. Uh, case I have, you have this new technology, and with fMRI technology, you can give voice to the most vulnerable people on earth. And yet, as soon as you do, you, leave, you, know, you have a suite of ethical dilemmas, probably the most acute of which is, of, of course, whether you should ask patients like Scott whether they wish to continue to live. Let me go to my next case, which is, who should driverless cars kill? 1.3 million people die on the roads each year worldwide. 
You might think that who gets hit and who gets killed doesn't discriminate, but that's not true. 90% of those fatalities are in poor or, mid- or middle-income countries, and car fatalities is the second leading cause of death worldwide among children aged 5 to 14. Our most vulnerable people in the, the most vulnerable people in the world are being slaughtered on the roads. Enter Google, Tesla, Volvo, and other companies and uh, universities, all Im- trying to implement autonomous cars, driverless car technology. These are cars that would not have any driver, but the computer would take over and drive for them. Experts estimate that 90% of these fatalities would be avoided if we implemented this technology. So arguably, you have an ethical imperative to implement it as quickly as possible. But as soon as you start to think about it, you realize that you're up to your neck in ethical issues. A pedestrian walks out in front of the road. What does the car do? You need to program that in. Does the car hit the pedestrian? Does the car do a kind of utilitarian calculus over how many people will, you know, trying to minimize total life loss? Does the car take into account how old and young they are? Does the car risk the passenger himself or herself? You might think, well, I don't, I, when I'm driving, I don't make all these big ethical dis- dilemma, you know, decisions all the time. That's not true. Anytime you shift risk from one person to another, you're making an ethical decision. These instructions need to be programmed into these cars. As the cars are going around, they're sensing everything, and all of these choices have to be made. You're not going to, at the end of the day, uh, you know, imagine uh, putting next to the lights a dial you know, from good to evil. Incidentally, in studies, people want other cars to be dialed to good, and not their car. Okay. uh, Socially responsible science. Now let me talk about UCSD for a little bit. UC San Diego is no stranger to socially responsible science. In fact, it's in our DNA. This is Founders Day, Founders Weekend. And and our main founder, the founder, uh, Roger Revell, not only did he discover climate change, but he also tried to do something about it. He went to D.C., and then he came back, and when he came back, he was a professor of science, technology, and public affairs, working on many of the same topics that Jennifer does. Our first chancellor, Herb York, whom I had the pleasure to meet, you know, worked on you know, coming up with the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project, probably the most ethically fraught research ever. And then he spent the rest of his life working on nuclear deterrence. And it's not just founding scientists, either. My former colleague in history, Naomi Oreskes, used her historical talents to unearth much that's interesting about the climate change debate. And she's become a a leading voice in the country on that topic. And there's no shortage of these things. So if we look at faculty around us now, here's Larry Goldstein, one of the leading stem cell researchers in the world. He's wondering whether it's okay for him to inject stem cells into various people. And like with the cars case, he's got the pressure of knowing that he's got this Science that can help, potentially help, you know, innumerable people. And here's Ethan Baer, one of the top geneticists in the world. Using the new CRISPR technique, he could transform the genome of a mosquito so that it can't transmit malaria, a killer of 600,000 people per year. And he's wondering whether the goods obtained by doing that outweigh the environmental risks. But we don't just have ethical problems, we have uh, problem solvers as well. The campus is just stuffed with 
people in the social sciences and all and humanities, and just focusing on my own department because I know it. So the top two, Dan and Nelkin and David uh, Brink, they've been working lately on psychopathology and criminal responsibility. When do brain defects function as excuses? It's a big issue for the law. Dan is here, so you could talk to her later if you like. My colleague Nancy Cartwright works on uh, philosophy of science and social and public policy, especially on education lately. She was recently honored as one of the 19 most influential scholars of the 20th century. My new colleague, Kerry McKenzie, who's also here, she's working on the cost, the huge cost that pseudoscience imposes upon society. So anyway, my vision is to, is simple, is just to take all these smart people, put them together into an institute of practical ethics. It doesn't have to have the pool. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, um, I mean, in my experience, it's just that simple. If you put a bunch of smart people like that together, you know, great research will happen. The, uh, um, sorry, now the pool thing got me, got me thinking. Uh, you put great people like that together, and the thing is, they will be really unique. So here you'd have, what I'm imagining is something where you have these cutting-edge natural scientists working alongside uh, ethicists and, and great social scientists. What would you get from such a thing? Well, I think you get a lot. So first of all, you get good science. So the idea of all of this is not to slow science, but just the opposite. Figure out what's responsible, and then full steam ahead. You also get good guidance on policy and law. Think about all the different issues of the day, the things like this, the driverless cars and all of that. You hear uh, statements from the Hastings Center. You hear statements from the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. You barely hear a peep from the West Coast. I think with a prominent center, we can leverage our unique history our, and our current expertise to become a leading voice in this country on national policy when it comes to so socially responsible science. And finally, last but not least, the chancellor has asked you know, in his strategic plan for us to become a student-centered institution. We could teach the scientists and others of tomorrow, equip them so that they can better handle the ethical dilemmas that they're going to face. So uh, what we've done so far, well, so far we just started off small, but there are a few little accomplishments we can mention. So first, I'm very proud of the fact that my department will, in January, open its doors to the first bioethics minors. It's a small step, but I think it's important that you know, we, have we have hundreds of students going off into the health profession. I think it's great that they're going to get training there. I hope to unroll a master's program in bioethics with, joint with the med school, and that, that would train doctors and others. Tomorrow morning, I talk to a company about de uh, developing uh, bioethics so training software with Larry Goldstein, uh, the stem cell person. Uh, we're looking to search and hire uh, some of the top bioethicists in the world and bring them here. With Ethan Baer and the Craig Ventner Institute, we're going to have a workshop in a couple of months devoted to uh, the environmental risks of genetic engineering. So you can see, even in just these little small cases, how research, te uh, teaching, and, te and industry all feed off one another. So far, all of this is just piecemeal. But what I can imagine is, with the help of people on and off campus, developing something much greater, something that really realizes the vision of the, our founders of having a unique public institution. Thank you.
Good evening. So I have the unenviable position of being the guy that has to follow the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and all this stuff, and all I'm going to have is a ukulele. So these are amazing colleagues. And this work today and tonight is really about us as a community. And that's what I'm going to talk about. Although I would really like to talk about Craig's pool for a little longer. I think that would be really nice, too. So let's start here. These are the words that are outside of our library. If you haven't seen it before, it's uh, doubled as a spaceship in any number of movies. And the words are read, write, think, and dream. And to me, tonight is about the dream. It's about how do we take the amazing work that's happening here at UCSD, how do we put everybody together with a pool and create some really amazing things here at this campus to continue to grow our own work. And I think to do that, this African proverb really speaks to me. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I believe in my heart, this is about going far. But in order to go far, we must go together. All of us, regardless of our discipline, breaking out of our silos, coming together to create new innovations and ideas. I understand something about going far. I'm the first in my family to go to college. My parents barely made it through high school. My grandmother, who is right there, barely made it to the sixth grade. By the way, that's me, and I think that haircut is going to make a big comeback someday soon. (laughs) But the reason I'm here today on this stage in this esteemed place with my amazing colleagues is because my grandmother introduced me to somebody who went to college. I didn't know the secret handshakes or special dances one has to do to get into college. But that one relationship fundamentally changed my life. And my grandmother cared about education very deeply. In fact, that's her right there. She was a cafeteria lady. Every day she took time to serve meals and food to kids to make their lives better. She had dramatic impact on student achievement, but nobody ever took the time to tell her so. How many people here in our own community don't know the importance they have on our mission and our work? How do we let people know in an intentional and meaningful way? You see, I come from a long line of cafeteria ladies. My mom was a cafeteria lady also. She cared deeply about education. My mom passed away a little over a month ago. And so I dedicate my work to her commitment to education. These are incredible women that enabled me to be standing on this stage today. Relationships matter, and they matter in deep and fundamental ways that sometimes we take for granted. This is the Sagrada Familia. It's in Barcelona, which is a beautiful city and has great tapas and cava, I should say. This particular cathedral has been under construction since 1872. It is still under construction. In fact, it will be under construction for the next 20 years or so. And if you go to Sagrada Familia, you will see, if you look at the base, bricks. This cathedral is built upon bricks. 
And there were brick layers that created that foundation. And while they are creating that foundation, they thought of themselves as bricklayers, not builders of cathedrals. And often in our work, we get caught up in the idea of being a bricklayer and the bricks themselves. And we forget that the real purpose and mission and vision of our work is to create a cathedral. A cathedral of learning. An amazing place that we know no matter what we do, we are connected to something bigger. And if we are to be connected to something bigger and make a difference in our community in deep and profound ways, as we've done for a long time, then we've got to approach the work using both rigorous science and relevant connections to the world. Let's think about science for a second. We can imagine science being on two axes, the theoretical value of the work and the applied use of the work. And we can imagine that these run from low to very high on each axis. This creates four boxes, which we professor types love, because we can take a complex world and organize it into four distinct parts and feel good about it. Let's look at these quadrants a bit closer. If we think about somebody whose work was actually quite low in theory but high in applied use, we might think of Edison. Edison was a tinkerer. If we think about somebody whose work at the time was very high in theory and empirical use, but low in applied use, we might think of the physicist Bohr. But the work that I think we strive in, the work that you heard about tonight from my amazing colleagues, I think is situated in this quadrant. And this quadrant is Pasteur's quadrant. You see, Pasteur cared deeply about important, pressing social issues of the time. But he just didn't want to do advocacy work. He wanted to use good science, good empirical study, and actually have direct relevance to communities and societies. And I think tonight, as you listen across all the speakers, I hope that you hear that same idea about connecting rigor to relevance. Now, sometimes in doing this work, we get very caught up Oh, yes, yes, I know. Some, that's right. Some people in the audience may have closure issues, so I wanted to make sure that I filled in this last one here. So if we think about somebody whose work is quite low in theory and quite low in applied use, it, it might be Wiley Coyote, who I'm sure many of you think about quite often. But sometimes in doing this work, we get narrowly focused on an idea of capital that is about money. And don't get me wrong, money and resources are important, but there's other kinds of capital. For example, human capital, our knowledge, our understanding, our training. But really, sometimes we get so caught up in human capital that we forget what is really critical. And that's the idea of social capital. Our connections, our connectivity, who we are together, and how we can build on one another is incredibly important. Now, I'm not saying we should just attend to the collective all the time. The individual, of course, is very important. This is a famous picture of Edison. And Edison is handing his light bulb to the future. But Edison knew that the light bulb was a party trick without the system that was behind it. So we've got to think about the individual and the collective as we move forward. Because there's deep intelligence and wisdom in the collective. If we can figure out how to harness it. This is a jar of jelly beans. 
And to an individual person in the room, we're not very good at guessing the number of jelly beans in said jelly bean jar. However, if I was to take all of your guesses and take the average of this, average of those guesses, it would come out to be almost to the jelly bean accurate to how many jelly beans are in the jar. There is something about the wisdom that we have together. How do we connect to that? Margaret Wheatley says the following. In organizations, real power and energy is generated through relationships. And the capacity to form those relationships is more important than tasks, functions, roles, and positions. This is a very powerful idea, isn't it? It suggests that we're going to level, that we're going to connect. I think what it suggests is that we've got to evolve from an information ecosystem in which it's about all about me and mine to a knowledge ecosystem in which we are interdependent and interconnected. By the way, this is real data. So these are people interacting in terms of a big educational policy. So now we can actually map social terrain in ways that we've never been able to do before. And if we think about the idea about these systems, we have to think about both formal systems and informal systems. Formal systems can be categorized in this manner. And we've all seen these organizational charts before. And what they assume is that there are a bunch of boxes and each box does its own thing. The other thing that it assumes is that there's an all-knowing red eye that is at the very top of the organization. There may be some all-knowing red eyes in the room, so just so you know. But that isn't the way that I think the world actually works. I think the world looks more like this. It's messy. And it's interconnected. And it's not always obvious. And while the all-knowing red eye is prominent in this model, actually that particular individual could be quite marginalized in this different kind of system. So how do we think about formal systems and the way that they interact with informal systems? To do this, we've got to understand something about networks. There's a couple really important things about networks. One of the first things is that stuff flows through them. This is the blame network post-Katrina. You'll see at the very top, that's Michael Brown. He's the head of FEMA. He gets a whole bunch of blame for what happened. You've got the mayor of New Orleans off to the left. He also receives some blame. You've got George Bush off to the right. He receives some blame. And old Georgie blames himself. And then you've got some people that are very good about sending blame but don't receive any, like Bill Clinton, for example who seems to be very good at this sort of thing. So this happens to be blame, but we can look at expertise or knowledge or any number of different things. The second thing that's really important in networks is that the structures of them really matter. This is the Bernie Madoff network. That's our boy Bernie in green there. Maybe he should be in orange. Um, <laughs> some of you will get that in the drive home tonight. Um, what you're going to notice about this structure is that all roads lead to Bernie, right? And we know when Bernie went bye-bye what it did to the system, right? So the structure of our relationships and the way we're connected and not connected really matter. In fact, they can reveal some really interesting things, and it probably makes you think of wine. So we can think, I know it makes me think of wine. So we can think of relationships not just between people, but between things, I know I have good relationships with myself and grapes. This also shows different relationships between grapes, things that might not be obvious to us if we start thinking about the world in a relational manner. 
Here's some data from a couple schools that we've been working with. What you're looking at here is social network maps. Each dot up here represents a teacher. They're colored by grade level, so different colors equal different kinds of grade level. And you'll notice the first school, which is on the top, elementary school, second school down below, they're about two miles apart from one another. And one of the things you might notice right off the bat is that there's not very much connection in that first top school, right? And you may also notice that there's some nodes off to the side, right? That's not a printing problem. That means that those people were not going to anybody for best practices, nor was anyone coming to them. It's lost capital in the system. The lower schools you can see here, the one on the bottom, that has much more connectivity. I don't have to tell you that this particular school on the lower part here is doing much better. But what's interesting to me is that when the district saw this data, what they did is for the top school, they, on the one on top here, they started investing more in human capital and training and really trying to build up people's capacity, and that did get them some improvement. But nowhere near what they are having in the school that was in the lower graph here. And the reason for that is that whenever we try to do anything, it's always layered on top of existing relationships. So sometimes we might think things are a knowledge problem when in fact they're a relational issue. So this idea about relationships are really important. This is additional work. This is, if you're blue in color, you're a principal. If you're red in color, you work in a central office. I call this my Congress graph for obvious reasons. And you'll notice that one node in the middle, it may interest you to know that that person retired. <laughs> so it breaks the system into two, right? So no amount of knowledge repairs that. It's about our connectivity. I have the distinct pleasure to be working with a couple of superintendents who are joined us tonight uh, from, es from Chula Vista Elementary School District and the Vista Unified School District. And we're working with a community partner, Neville Bill Moria with Mission Fed, who's in the back, a great friend of mine. All of us have been working together to really think about, can we act and improve upon the relationships that we have in systems and make a difference in the lives of kids? And if we look at this data at time point one, time point two, and time point three, we can see improvements around innovation that are taking place in the Vista Unified School District. This is real data, real people making an instant impact on the work that's happening in that amazing place with that amazing superintendent. We can also create metrics that are associated with that, and we can run all kinds of cool models. But our work is not limited to just organizations. We can go to much bigger data. We're looking at Twitter and social media. We're taking an individual perspective, which as you know, in Twitter, it's a whole bunch of noise. So we're trying to make sense of that noise. And when you try to make sense of that noise from a network perspective, you get this. This is a network of 53,000 people and their interactions around a very important, influential educational policy. We can start taking that noise and making sense out of it. The Chancellor talked about this idea about big data. This is a way to think about big data from a social perspective. And that is incredibly important. We can also take this bunch of noise and we can drill down. We can find out who are the key actors in this particular network. And one of the things that our research shows is that when people from different perspectives bump into one another, amazing things can happen with or without a pool. <laughs> Here's an example. 
There's a partnership between the Department of Education Studies, of which I have the privilege to be the chair, and thank you to my colleagues for coming tonight, and the UC San Diego School of Medicine around neuroscience. We have come together and have launched a new journal called Educational Neuroscience. We really want to make the mark in this space. We want to mix these fields together, gain insights that we can get from the brain, understand real educational problems in a deep and important manner, and fundamentally change the way that we do our work. That happens, and it happens here because we are connected in different ways. I'll close with this story. I told you I did my Fulbright in Barcelona. This is a picture of a big festival that happens in, uh, in Barcelona, all over Catalonia, really. And it's called Human Castles. And human Castles is a really amazing thing. This represents the foundation of a human castle, which I'm going to show you in a second. But these people come together, create an interdependent, strong network of relationship. They're connected by their own sense of passion, purpose, and partnership in doing something amazing. And when they come together, they can build something amazing like this. And when I went and I interviewed people asking them about this, I asked a typical question. Okay, who is the real key player here? And to a person, they told me there is no one key player. That is a system. And you know you're a part of that system when you feel a person's shoulders in front of you and in turn you feel their hands on your shoulders. Up to that kid, that's a four-year-old or five-year-old little boy that climbs to the top of this castle, holds up his four fingers representing the four stripes of the Catalonia flag. I also asked, because I'm afraid of heights, I said, what if the kid freaks out and doesn't want to do this? So it turns out they have a backup kid, which is nice. <laughs> we should all have a backup kid, I guess. But what's most interesting to me is that they celebrate that young boy even if he freaked out and didn't make it to the top. How do we create systems that honor us when we try something and it doesn't work out? We've got to know we've got hands on our back. And to do this, we've got to be mindful and intentional and bring ourselves together as a community. I started with an African proverb. I'll conclude with African philosophy called Ubuntu. And it says the following, I am because we are, and we are because I am. And that's my dream. Thank you. For speaker number two, Paul Niehaus, what is the difference of giving money directly and welfare? The, the concept of teach a man to fish, he'll have fish for life. What is the difference between giving money directly and welfare? So it's a, it's a good question. It obviously depends a lot on sort of what you mean by welfare. And I think welfare is a really loaded term, right, that comes with a lot of assumptions. And um, my, my approach to all of this has been to become just a strict empiricist and follow the data and what it tells me. Um, I think probably the most productive way to answer the question is to tell you a bit about what we know about transfers in uh, the U.S. and in other emerging markets versus internationally. Um, and I think this is a, a big difference and an important one when you start thinking about the, uh, the approach we take to foreign aid. Um, we know a lot less about the impact of transfers domestically, okay, what it would look like to give people the same kind of money or 
equivalent kind of money that we do at GiveDirectly uh, domestically. There have been very few studies at the same, um, the same level of rigor um, as the evidence that I referred to earlier. And, and that's actually an area of research that I'd love to see pushed forward. Um, it's harder to do here. It's, it's, uh, it would be more expensive, but I think it would be incredibly valuable. We have a little bit. We have some interesting evidence on the tra- effect of transfers to Native American populations, for example. That's a population we think of as having enormous problems. Um, turns out that transfers to that population have generated huge reductions in recidivism and in, um, in uh, better, better learning outcomes for kids and reduced crime among teenage children. So um, to the extent that this has been looked at domestically, I think the impacts have been positive. But I'd be the first to say that we know a lot less. Um, the second thing I'd say is I think that um, when we think about international poverty, it's always tempting to reason from what we understand about domestic poverty. Right? And we've all seen you know, people with the cardboard sign, street corner, all of that. Um, I think that's, uh, that's dangerous because the process by which people end up in that situation is really quite different from uh, being born in the middle of Africa um, and being poor largely because you haven't had access to real resources or opportunities that most people do here. Um, and I think that's really critical to keep in mind and, and, and a big part of how I've interpreted the data um, on the really positive impacts of cash transfers internationally. Thank you. Okay, Jennifer, Bernie, can, you, can your research focused on developing countries help America feed its hungry citizens? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, we actually have a ton of hidden hunger uh, in the United States and uh, in the greater San Diego and border region in general. So I know it's a problem that... Uh, hits a lot of people at the heart uh, right here. Um, So I think um, there are differences when we think about who the poor and food insecure are, um, typically uh, in emerging and developing economies um, compared to the United States. In the United States, um, most of the food insecure communities tend to be uh, urban uh, n- not farmers, uh, right? Only you know, like one percent of the United States, far less, is uh, is farmers. So, uh, uh, so it's a little bit of a different story in terms of like boosting productivity. However, um, one thing we care about from the food security perspective is actually just having access to food, and that could be physical access because you produce the food yourself, or it could be economic access because you're able to to purchase food. Um, and I think there's a, a tremendous amount of Work happening here in uh, in San Diego. Colleagues from UC San Diego, Keith Pizzoli, uh, urban studies folks, working on doing similar things um, in some of our urban communities here, uh, bolstering community gardens, um, helping to boost production, uh, helping to actually uh, get people with net surpluses that they're able to sell, creating sort of urban farming livelihoods uh, in this ecosystem. So I do think there's like a lot of transferability, even if the underlying population structures and needs are different. Seems like there's a lot of synergy between you and Paul, even when you talk about feeding or or business or self-sufficiency. I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys get together. (laughs) You know, you start seeing these overlapping, like, you know, the Venn diagram, which is probably the only technical term I know when it comes to that, but uh, that's the idea. Okay, Emily Roxworthy, academic role-playing, how do you know it works long-term, and how do you measure success? Um, That is also a good question. Um, So the UC Office of the President has been, with this uh, academic pilot, the tour that we did to all 10 uh, UC campuses over the 14-15 academic year, is doing follow-ups. So there, I think we just saw the one come through here for UC San Diego from our October 25th, 2014 um, uh, performance to measure the impact three months out, six months out, et cetera. 
Um, but I think um, it needs to be um, a, a practice that's permeating from the very top, which is where we've been um, targeting it up to this point, and now the sort of follow-up performances where we're going to entire faculties so that the information isn't just sort of trickling down from the academic leadership, but is being um, sort of experienced and commented on by, by every member of the institution. Um, so I now am, am trying to imagine beyond sort of surveys with, which ask about empathy and, and um, efficacy, how we can actually see um, behaviors changing and institutional practices changing. So I'd actually like to, to partner with offices like um, the um, Office of, um, uh, what is it, EDI stands for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, thank you, um, here at UC San Diego, and there are similar offices at, at almost all institutions that are trying to look at how well we're doing um, at moving the needle on this. So um, I think there's a, a lot of people working on similar issues, and it would be great to, again, sort of um, get together on this. Um, but just in terms of anecdotally, we've seen um, a lot of people reporting that um, it was a program that they found very memorable, that they still think about, and I have to believe that it's something that they kind of return to in, in their daily practices. But it's something we're very, very interested in, um, it not just being entertaining or even emotional, but actually um, instituting change. Okay, Craig Callender, is there an option to think ahead with ethics? Isn't it necessary to cross those bridges as we come to them? <clears throat> well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's kind of open-ended. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, so I guess the idea of the question is, you know, we won't be able to think ahead about some of these things. And it's true, you know, in some of the cases I mentioned, you, you, you know, it would have been hard to have predicted mm -hmm. that you could do some of these things. On the other hand, I think some of them, you know, you do get a kind of glimmering. I mean, so we've known, so for instance, with genetic engineering that, you know, we could sort of imagine if, you know, what we could, you know, so there were lots of thought experiments and maybe, maybe before it was more science fiction-y, but now that science fiction is becoming real. And so we, can, we could imagine and extrapolate forward and, and prepare for those kinds of um, situations, I think. Well, it, things are happening so fast. I mean, technology, you talk about, you know, exponentially how things have grown. I mean, you said, I think you said in 100 years for technology, in the last decade, in the last five years, I think we're all kind of blown away by how quickly things mm -hmm. change. So how do you, it's hard to even anticipate what we need to think about, I think. It well, I think you need, you know, society though. is going to, you know, to cope with this, yeah. you know, society is going to need some people who are going to be thinking ahead like that. Okay. Um, the Jetsons, you know, we thought about we're finally getting the, you know, the, the phone, the watch phone or whatever, you know, <laughs> that company that made that, that we were thought as kids we were going to have earlier. Okay, Alan Daly, how do you teach others the importance of social connections? Well, I, I guess I'd be the odd person out if I didn't say good question. So, <laughs> so, but I'm going to up it and say great question. Um, so I think one of the first things that, that we've been doing a lot of thinking about is um, sort of co-opting the term capital. Um, you know, the, the idea about uh, resources and money is important. And, you know, sometimes when we're feeling enlightened, we can think about human capital, right, our training and experience, and that's really important. But I think part of what we're trying to do is to really get this idea about social capital, the fact that our 
relationships have value, to try to get that to be more present in people's mind. Um, and I think for a lot of people, we have an intuitive sense that relationships are really important. We, we don't leave our relationships behind when we walk in the schoolhouse door. We carry them with us. And so it's an effort to sort of um, start foregrounding the value or the capital that exists within our social relationships and thinking about that as a starting point as opposed to just something we do happenstance or that we play lip service to. So I think this idea about how are we both mindful and intentional about the formation and the creation of our relationships is exceedingly important. Do you think, though, things like Facebook and Twitter, even though they're, they're different, but... Do you see that that has helped bring people together or, or break people apart? Or, I mean, there, there's so many ways to look at it, but in some ways it, it can work on relationships. Yeah, I, I'm going to, I think Paul said it um, beautifully. Th- these are empirical questions, right? And so part of those um, graphs that I showed you, the very beautiful, complex-looking ones, this is an effort to try to understand and answer some of those questions using much bigger data sources and much more powerful computing. And, and, you know, as few as four or five years ago, we couldn't do this kind of work that we can do right now. So I think this is an important empirical area to really be looking at. And, and I think as we, as a society, start thinking about our connectivity and our relationships more and more and where they take place, it's going to really require us to really be studying this deeply and, and in profound ways, I hope. Well, then here's a perfect question to go to Angela Booker. How have digital tools, smartphones, computers, notebooks, impacted storytelling and community connections? Interesting question. <laughs> Hold on. Um, again, I think there, there, these are questions to still be addressed and answered. I think at, in our work, um, well, let me, I'll start with my work and then I'll, sort of prior to uh, being at Town & Country and then now there. Um, Part of my work has been about the ways that people collectively uh, sort of take up and appropriate these digital tools. And in my field, uh, in the learning sciences, my subfield, uh, a lot of the energy around digital technology is around how to sort of design uh, almost cognitive supports or interventions and then scale them up. And uh, resources like smartphones and tablets and et cetera then become great resources for that scaling, right? It's like if we can get this right, then we can distribute it inexpensively. People can have this in their classrooms at age uh, 10 or 12 or 8. Or there's someone coming to visit a laboratory of comparative human cognition who's looking at this in preschoolers. Um, My work is more about uh, really asking questions that situate the technology, that we begin to participate with those technologies in relation to Uh, other kinds of activities that already exist. So an example is um, I worked with high school students who were trying to influence policy change in their school district at a time when they were using a lot of the early social media, uh, think AOL, sort of instant messenger, that kind of thing. And they were distributed across the San Francisco Bay Area. They didn't have cars. They were young. And I would go and ask them, so, hey, how are you guys using technology? And they would look at me like I was nuts. Like, what what do you mean? We just use it. Like, it's just what we do every day. Um, When they started trying to have meetings with their social media, they struggled. They were really, really proficient with the tool, but using it to try to negotiate policy change was difficult, and they even talked about it. They said, well, it was a social space, and it was hard to transition that social space 
into this other activity that they were learning how to do. When they got really good at that other activity, that policy-making activity, and they started to get pressure, because they got savvy, and they started to apply pressure to powerful people. And when you apply pressure to powerful people, they pressure you back, and they have more power. So they started to use those spaces to convene privately and negotiate and uh, strategize, and they surprised everyone the way they used those tools. But those tools didn't become resources until they were embedded in another kind of activity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to build on that understanding uh, in our collaboration with the Town and Country Learning Center by thinking about how, uh, what, what the tools are situated sort of inside of. A lot of people have tablets, they have phones, they have these resources. But when you try to use them for something like co-production, uh, sort of going from telling a story and circulating a story uh, among a group of people to producing it and sharing it, uh, that's a different kind of reflection, a different kind of decision making. And that doesn't just naturally flow. That's something that you have to learn how to do. So I think that the, sort of we're still learning when and how these resources can, can be applied, but they can certainly be powerful, but they're not powerful simply because they're present. You know, just from the world of television and, and um, journalism, it's scary sometimes to see that everybody thinks because they have a smartphone or a video camera or whatever and they put it up there that they suddenly are journalists. They are seeing the world from their perspective. They're sharing that world. But, um, you know, maybe I'm old school, but it it does um, concern a lot of us who are in the world of journalism that some of this technology, ethics are going down the drain, um, stories are out there that maybe be completely inappropriate, you know, for for some people to see. I mean, really, things that are just really scary. And I, I would sort of throw this out there if anyone has thoughts on, you know, how we kind of get a rein on some of the madness that we're seeing um, that is the real-world concern um, from some of the technology and science and things that are coming out of smart people. Anybody? That's <laughs> just sort of, you know, something when I sit there and look at something right. on YouTube or something, I go, oh, my gosh, how did right. that happen? Well, I mean, I think what Angela is saying is that if, the, if those technologies are embedded in institutions and networks and communities, and as Alan was also pointing out, it, you know, it's the, the problem with the technologies is when they atomize us, right, like when they alienate us from each other. Um, and it's ironic, right, that social media would actually keep us from, from gathering as communities, but we see it over and over again, and that's, the, I think, the type of information that you're talking about emerges in that sort of isolation. But when it's embedded in institutions and networks, I think there's a lot of, you know, safeguards within that, right? A lot of people checking each other. I mean, I think, I believe human beings are naturally ethical creatures, right? Um, but they need to be, feel that they're accountable, and they need to feel that someone is witnessing what they're doing, and there's too much in, in new media that makes you feel like nobody is holding you accountable. Mm-hmm. I, I also... I can't wait for Well, I'll just do this all night. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, from a research standpoint, I, this is an... Un, I, I understand from your standpoint, this is probably like chaotic and scary and dangerous. From a, from a research standpoint, this is fantastic, right? Because we are, we are in the middle of a... I think we're in the middle of a of an enormous shift in which we've got 
people that have control over media in some way to think about it. And you've got professional media who's trying to figure out what's the role of this media. And you've got these two sort of working back and forth. And and in many ways, they're frenemies, right? So um, I I learned that from one of the students. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, your friend and your enemy at the same time. Um, But the idea is that if you watch a professional media, often they're reporting social media, Mm -hmm. right? So suddenly... Tweets become a source of news. So you're in this very interesting space in which you've got professional media and social media interacting. And I think we are in a, in a huge shifting point, and how it's going to shift and play out is going to be unbelievably fascinating. But the world will never be the same now that these two medias are unleashed. The question is, how, are, how do we think about it? How do we study it? How do we understand it? And then ultimately, what happens? And, and the ethics and, and Angela. I just want to add at the same time that we can sometimes think things are new because they become more widely visible when, in fact, they're very, very old. Mm -hmm. We have been reproducing our oppressions, our ugliness, our our heart, our hurt, right? Like there's a notion of restorative justice that speaks to the way we pass around hurt and in trying to understand it, we continue to pass it around. So, So we need other methods. And I think in a lot of ways what we see is not so much new as much as it's become more visible. Right and sometimes accidentally visible and sometimes intentionally visible. And so, you know, I started out uh, in sociology. And so as sort of a lot of what I imagine is we should assume that we're going to reproduce these uh, these things, these very things that we're trying to, to change. And if we assume that, then we change the way that we sort of take, take on the problem. Um, we need methods that recognize, oh, we're probably going to reproduce a bunch of stuff when we move into these new terrains, even when we don't intend to. So we need methods that include not only long-range, big-picture ethical questions, but how do we practice uh, making ethical decisions in a way that reveals to us, makes visible to us, how we're reproducing what we didn't intend to or maybe what we did, and then how we can adjust, right? So I just think it's important that we remember that these, these are not new mm-hmm. sort of points of view. We are at the end of this fascinating evening. I appreciate your being here, all that you're doing, all of that academic stuff that I was afraid I was not going to understand. It makes perfect sense because you are applying it to real world, real life for all of our kids, our future, and today. Thank you for what you're doing. For all of you, thank you for being here. If you didn't get your question answered or you have more information or you want to get more information, Please visit the Founders Symposium website at founders.ucsd.edu, where we have the bios of the speakers. It's going to be on UCSD TV. You'll be able to watch this again. I plan to go back and watch each segment because it was really quite a lesson. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.